Good to see you all, and uh, we're in this series uh, working through the book of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 2 this morning, and if you wouldn't mind turning your Bibles there, it's a lot easier when we're looking at that uh, together. And as you're turning, I'm wondering how many here in the room have had something that someone has said to them at some point in your life, a statement, some kind of a drop of wisdom that someone gave you that has stuck with you for many, many years. Maybe it was a a friend that some said something at just the right time, and you're like, "Man, that was really wise. That was really good." Maybe it was a maybe it was a family member that maybe called you out in some junk in your life that you're like, "Yeah, that's stuck. That's a zinger. It's held on to that for a lot of years." Maybe it's a a coworker that said something, and you're like, "Whoa, where did that come from? Where did that uh, drop of wisdom?" I don't know what it's been in your life. Maybe even a, a pastor has said something where you're like, "Man, they they seem like they were." just talking directly to me in the moment. I don't know what it is for you. I'll share an example in my life, one that stuck with me for a number of years. I don't know if you remember in 2002, this book that was released called A Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. It was introduced, isn't it weird to think that that's 18 years ago now? Well, he had a quote in there that has just rattled in my brain for just just a ton of years. And this is it. It's on the screen there. I'm not who I think I am. I am not who you think I am, but I really am who God says I am. In other words, for those of us that wrestle with identity stuff, you may have had someone that's maybe said something hurtful, maybe a coach, maybe a teacher, maybe a parent, something that's maybe stuck with you, like I'm describing here this morning, that's stuck with you for a really long time, something hurtful, and you've adopted that as part of your identity. Or maybe you've come to some conclusions about yourself And maybe some negativity is kind of set in based on some past performance things. And that's defined your identity. But what's so freeing about this statement that you see there, that what's so freeing is really in a thousand years from now, what opinion is going to matter? What opinion is going to matter? Is it somebody that you have in your current relational circle? No, is it some? Is it a coach, a teacher, a a Boy Scout troop leader? Like, well, who whose opinion is going to matter? The one that's going to last past this lifetime, when we've sucked in our very last breath here on earth, the one opinion that's going to matter is what does God say about me? What does God say about me? So when we're studying God's word. And there's sections of scripture where it starts to bring up identity statements, things about who you are in Jesus Christ. Our ears should perk up. Our naps should be postponed. Like there there should be a a degree of interest like none other because you're like, this is the one opinion that is going to last who he says I am. Well, first Peter being led by the spirit of God, Peter gave a ton of identity statements in our section of scripture. So I'm excited to see what he has to say about you and what he has to say about me. Let me pray before we explore that. Lord Jesus, we invite you now to maybe redirect our thinking about ourselves. Maybe some lies that need to be untold, some mistruths, some misinformation that needs to be corrected. Or maybe, God, maybe it's just something that we've known that we need to be reminded of. 
God, we ask that you'd be present and moving in this room, that you would speak to us through the power of your spirit. We invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So chapter 2, we're starting in verse 4 this morning, and it starts with a little bit of identity statements about who Jesus is before it moves to who we are. Verse 4, it says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So the very first thing, we're going to just pause on that verse because there's even a lot in there. It says, as you come to him. So it's an expectation if you are, he's talking to Gentile believers here, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that you will be going to him. Like that's an expectation in our life when you're going through stuff. He's the one we should be going to. It says, then it starts with a description of him. Describes him as a living stone. Kind of a unique title to give someone. In two more verses, it actually describes more specifically not just a living stone, but an actual cornerstone, which is an important term in that day and age. He's using something uh, that most people would be familiar with, where we have builders that build houses for us. In that day and age, you were responsible for building your own house. And so a big decision that someone would have to make would be to decide what cornerstone they were going to use in their building. In biblical times, a cornerstone was the foundation upon which a building was constructed. Once in place, the rest of the building would conform to the angles and size of the cornerstone. If removed, the entire structure could even collapse. Here's a picture of a present day, maybe what we associate with a cornerstone. Maybe you've seen it more in our day and age. It's more like a tribute kind of a thing. In that day and age, it was a, a legit building material that determined the, the stability of the building that was being built. So he's describing Jesus as the cornerstone here, as a living stone, if you will. And that analogy he was saying was how people responded to him. This living stone was rejected by men. In other words, the same idea. Somebody's choosing a stone to build out off of, they rejected Jesus as the cornerstone or the foundation that they're willing to build their lives around. You wonder so often, I even have had somebody ask me recently the question, why was, why was Jesus rejected by so many? Why did people say, no, thank you? What's interesting is Jesus did exactly the opposite of what people had hoped he would do when he arrived. People had hoped that he would set them free from Roman rule and all of the outside uh, experiential things that they're going through. They, he'd be, they'd be released. Instead, he confronted them with their own sin issues. That's why they went from in five days from chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord to chanting, crucify him instead. The only thing that happened in between those two events, the triumphal entry and his court hearing was what? Him confronting them for their sin within the temple. That's the difference. And so here, Peter's saying that this cornerstone that's been rejected isn't seen the same way from God's vantage point. It says, in the sight of God, chosen and precious, chosen and precious, how would Peter know this? How could he make that kind of a statement that God himself thought this about Jesus Christ? 
Sometimes when you think back of the different accounts in the gospel message, you forget some of the things that these disciples got to see and experience. One of the things that Peter got to see and experience was the transfiguration of Jesus Christ where God himself audibly spoke these words. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So this wasn't just hearsay. This is Peter talking. Listen, I heard God himself say this about Jesus, that he was precious to him. So here, the, right out of the gates, what we believe about who Jesus is determines there are, who are, what our identity is. So here, he determines that he's chosen and precious. Now, continuing in verse 5, we start with some identity stuff about us in response to that. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be, holy, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, again repeated, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So Peter continues this comparison. He's describing us. He's saying, you're like a living stone now, based on who you've chosen to follow. And this, this, this living stone, this collection of living stone is being built into, what does it say there? A spiritual house. So he's keeping this analogy going. But then he says, with the intent of being a holy priesthood. Now, for our ears, hearing that kind of a statement about uh, Gentile believers, no big deal. We're, the majority of us in this room are Gentile believers. But in that day and age, for the audience, when you're a Gentile, you are considered outside of the, God's chosen people. You're considered outsiders. Here, Peter is crushing that thinking. Listen, you as a Gentile believer are considered as a holy priest Man, you're, the reader would have been like, are you kidding me? A priest was somebody that was descending from the tribe of, of, of Levi and was a mediator that stood between God and man that would bring sacrifices into the temple. Now he's saying to this audience, you are a holy priesthood. What in the world? A priest. Anybody here, sometimes you're just like, I don't really feel very holy, and I definitely don't feel like a, a priest. I mean, the images that come to mind of a priest, I'm like, that's not what I associate myself with. How is that even possible? We see it there in the text how it is possible, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Because of our choice, to embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior. You're now seen as, as holy and perfect before God. That's an identity statement that, whoa, that's a, that's a wow factor for sure. And for us, the interesting thing when you think about it, what role did a priest play? Where did a, where did a priest serve? This is an answer time. What did a... In a temple, right? He, he had a job to do. He, he, got, he got busy serving within the church. And so here's the moment when we're talking about identity stuff. If you are a priest, there's an intent that you are to serve the body of Christ, that you're to serve within the temple. Like, wait a second, what's that, what's that mean for, for me right now? If that's part of my identity, hey, guess what? We're all supposed to roll up our sleeves and church isn't just something that we attend, it's something we're intended to be a part of. 
building this, this, this beautiful community. And guess what church you're a part of right now? This one right here. Some of you are like, oh, I don't come very often. Well, you should. The intent is for you to be, as a priest, you're intended to give back, to use yourself. The scripture describes it as, as a living sacrifice, figuring out how we're going to serve in the body of Christ. And so my question for you, if that identity statement is true of you, if you're a priest, in fact, tell the person next to you, you're a priest. There you go. If, if that's true... If that's true, how are we doing with that role? How are we doing with that? Like, honestly, like, give yourself a grade. How are we, how are we doing with this, this whole title of priest? Am I actually contributing to any degree within the body of Christ? Do I have something that's like, yes, I, I'm using my gifts to do this. I'm using my gifts to do that. Or does there need to be a little bit of adjustment in priorities to make that happen? God's design was not for just, and this, we get a whole doctrine out of this idea. God's design was not just for the pastor and the staff to, to do everything. His intent was like, man, I want to see this person using their gifts. The pastor is just to, supposed to stir each other towards ministry, not to do all the ministry. The intent is for you to play different roles in the body of Christ. And so I ask you, how are you doing with that title Priest, do you have roles that you're playing within the body of Christ, building it up? You're like, man, pastor, you're getting really guilty, making me feel crummy about myself. I'm just talking about identity statements here. Don't shoot the messenger. So when we're sitting around someday and the angels are asking you, tell me about what you did as, your, uh, as a priest in the body of Christ. Don't be that person that has no story to share. Here he continues this intent, he describes him as the cornerstone. He's actually quoting, it's kind of cool, he's actually quoting Isaiah 28, 16, which prophesied about the coming Messiah. And he's saying, hey, whoever's put their trust in him, don't worry, you're not going to be put to shame. Verse seven, in fact, the, just the opposite. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. I've noticed that we're in a culture that loves to honor people based in their different areas of profession, especially if you're good at acting. We really love to honor people that are good at acting. Whether you're good at singing, we're really good at honoring. Whether you're good at sports, we're a culture that loves to honor people. But then there's a lot of us that kind of fall more in the average Joe category, that don't have a lot of things that, that are elevated as a big deal that you've done. I was watching uh, the NBA All-Star game this last weekend, and Kawhi Leonard won the NBA All-Star MVP, and they're asking him about, he had this awesome trophy, hey, uh, I think there's a picture, uh, had this awesome trophy, and they're asking, well, well where, where do you think you're going to display that? And he's like, oh, well, I'll probably have that in my trophy room. And I stopped and thought about it. Can you imagine having a home 
That one particular room is just set aside for trophies for your successes. Like, how sweet would that be? Like, hey, come see my trophy room. You know, like, are you kidding me? I, I just, I'm happy to have enough for my kids. You know, like this, this idea here is pretty awesome to think about that God is saying, so the honor is for you, for you, your identity statement here is that if you're in Christ, Based simply on your belief, you are honored by the only one at the end of our days that's going to matter. The God of the universe is saying, you get a participation trophy just based on your belief in him. That's pretty awesome news for all of us that are like, hey, I don't have a lot of successes, but I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. A good choice there. Then he describes, he goes on for the the idea of this, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So this is the picture. He's saying lots of people rejected him, but now he's the cornerstone over all. Everything revolves around him now. So for the person that said no to that, you made a really, really bad choice. I was trying to think in a human perspective. What's an example? Some of us dabble a little bit in the stock market. Well, early on, there's this guy by the name of Elon Musk that introduced this car company. It's back when Elon didn't have a whole lot of hair and uh, not a whole lot of money. And he introduced this car company and Tesla, people that bought stock in this. Are there some happy campers out there? People that put their their trust in Elon? Now, Now he's got tons of money and tons of hair. Like it's, it's awesome to see the, the translation there because they took a gamble and said, yes, I made the right choice. I made the right choice with that stock decision. Similar, only amplified a jillion. The one, those that have, that have put your trust in Jesus Christ, he's saying, listen, now he's the one that the, every, the whole universe, he's the cornerstone over all. You will not be put to shame. You are considered honored based on your belief. But here's the second side of that. Where we're honored, we're also on the other side of it. We're also a bit offensive to those that haven't chosen to put their belief in him. What does it say about the folks that haven't? He describes that that as Jesus as becoming a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. Both of those, he's quoting the Old Testament, which is interesting, Isaiah 8, 14 and Psalms 118, 22, both describe Jesus or the coming Messiah as being a rock of offense. So it was no shocker to God that his only begotten son would be rejected by many. And still today, there's not many names that evoke such an emotional response. When somebody brings up Jesus, people get, if they haven't embraced him, they're just like so emotionally charged based even on that simple name. He can be a stumbling block to many. The reason why, what does it say? Why is that? It says, because they disobey the word. Nobody likes the idea of Jesus because Jesus is a mirror to our own shortcomings. Or it brings to light that, wait a second, I know that I'm, I'm not perfect. And I, in order to embrace Jesus, you have to admit what? That I'm fallen, that I can't fix myself, that I'm broken, I'm in need of rescue. 
I can't do this on my own. And most people would rather stay in their sin rather than have an accountability of a God that's over all of them judging. Here's the picture though. He says, as they were destined to do. It says, because they disobeyed the word, as they were destined to do. There's a little bit of a part of us that's like, wait a second, isn't that kind of weird when it uses statements like that in scripture? I don't know if that causes pause when you're reading along. It caused me pause just thinking about that. As a, is it saying that some people are destined to reject God, to go their own way, to do, to do their own thing, to go independent? What's that saying? But, but in scripture, I thought it were called to free will, and I thought that was part of the thing, but then you also see of the descriptions of being chosen, and so is, it, are, is there predestination? Yes. Is there free will to choose? Yes. Is there lots of things in scripture that when you're, when you're looking at these different things, you're like, it doesn't seem like they work together, but there's a little bit of a submission to say right now, as it describes in Corinthians, we see through a glass dimly. We don't see all of it. We don't understand all of it, but somewhere in that equation of God's foreknowledge and him being present in the, in the past and the pre, and, uh, current is, is some of these confusing things. I was talking to my sister about that this week and she's always got, she's one of those people that has good wisdom stuff. And she said, but can't we see enough about God that we can trust what we can't see? Can't we see enough about God that we can trust what we can't see? Is what he showed us on the cross, his extreme love on the cross, not enough to trust us with what we don't necessarily understand? It's kind of like you're looking at a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and you're like, man, I can only see pieces of it, but the parts that I can see are so amazing that I can trust the pieces that I don't fully get. So here he's describing those that have put their trust in Jesus Christ, they are honored. And those who don't, it's a stumbling block. It's a, a point of offense to them. It continues in verse nine, talking about this whole chosen piece. It says, but you, describing the believer here, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You can pause there, verses nine through 10. There's so many identity statements, it's hard to narrow it down. I just put the word royal there. You can maybe jot some other ones that you see down in, into your notes. But basically, this list, the de description, he starts with what we already were talking about. He describes them as chosen people. What's interesting about these terms in this section, every single one of these descriptors is a repeat of terms used about the Israelites, about Jews in the Old Testament. So every single one's a, a duplicate title, if you will, describing God's chosen people. Now to these Gentiles, he's saying, you're a chosen person. And again, that word chosen is, is kind of a tricky one to, to figure out. What is, it, what is he saying? What does he mean by that? I uh, was thinking about that this week and was uh, kind of in our normal routine. We have a 
kind of a pattern every couple of weeks. So we go to the grocery store for smaller stuff, but every once in a while we do these Costco runs. Anybody in this, this habit of doing Costco runs? Anybody have some lack of self-control in your Costco runs? Anybody have the, those bills that add up for sure? And here's what's happened is they've elevated their game there. They've elevated their game. Not only do they have just the taste samples now at the end of the rows, now they have people actually working there trying to convince you to buy things that you don't need. Anybody have this? And you have trouble saying like, yeah, but I kind of want a blender that can break through a coconut. You know what I mean? Like, like uh, it, it, it's hard to say no to some of these things that they're introducing. They're, they're, they're introducing. And now all of a sudden you come home thing, with things you're like, man, I, I had no intent on buying that, but it's kind of handy. But here, here's, the, here's the thing I was thinking about that. The nice thing that I love about being in, in church and being called to be a, a minister and to share the gospel with, with people is you don't have to be a Costco salesperson because God has already chosen who he's going to rescue. You don't have to convince somebody to buy something that they don't want or they don't need. And you're like, well, how do I know who's chosen and who's not? You know who's chosen based on who actually responds to the gospel message. You know who's chosen based on who hears the truth and comes to it who's drawn to it. It has nothing to do with how great your presentation is. It's simply based on God's work behind the scenes. I love that reality for us as we're dealing and interacting with the world around us. So he describes us as chosen people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We already talked about the priesthood part, but I just caught my attention that title of royal. I don't know. I kind of like that idea. Anybody like having that description as part of your title as being royal? Like I watch all the crazy stuff that happens with royalty now and people moving to Canada to avoid it. I'm like, why leave such a cool thing? Like, that's awesome. I don't even know what their names are, but they're, they're, they're royal and there's something to that. What's so awesome to think about our identity as saying at some point you might feel like you're not really a big deal here. And I'd, I'd love to get us t-shirts, man. I'm a, I'm a big deal in heaven, you know? Like this, this idea that you're seen as royalty, you're seen as royalty. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm just describing what God says about our identity. I'm a big deal in heaven. And we're not sucked straight up to heaven because we have a specific role. We see it there. Why are we all of these things? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. This intention of proclaiming. When I was looking up and doing a little word search on that, the word proclaim there is not a, a soft, gentle word. The word proclaim there is a loud, vibrant, dynamic word. And my wife so often says to me, Scott, you're so loud. You're so loud. And you're not allowed to laugh at that right now. Uh, you're, he says, you're so loud. I said, honey, but I, when I get worked up about something, my, my voice just seems to respond to that. It just goes up in volume. And now I'm seeing biblically it's okay to proclaim his excellencies. For us, the intention of us is to live in our identity, but also then to proclaim it to those around us. We're to be loud. That's amazing news. Because Why? Because you've been brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. I uh, had the opportunity this week 
uh, our neighbor, r- literally right next door to us, right here with the, all the farm animals, uh, her, her Joy and her, her husband, Bob, uh, just passed away from cancer. It was a real bummer. And uh, it was uh, real short from like finding out that he had it till when uh, then him passing away. We had actually, we were just buying him a a gift basket to take over to be an encouragement, but he actually passed away before we could even get it over to him. And so it was like a real quick thing. And so we went over and just talking to her. It's so interesting though, because she loves Jesus and so did her husband just talking. She's like, you know what? She's like, but the thing that we have, the thing that we have, some of his last words were, just going home, just going home, something about going home. She said it was hard to say exactly what he was saying. I was like, oh, how awesome is that? That she in the middle of this trial, in the middle of this, knows that, that it doesn't have to be a darkness because, I mean, obviously she's definitely going to miss him for sure, but she's like, oh, but I have this, this light. I have this to hold on to that I know where he's going. I know where he's at now. We, as a Christ follower, if we've put our trust in Jesus Christ, now we're just proclaiming how amazing is that, that we've been brought out of darkness into the marvelous light. I get so concerned about somebody that doesn't know Jesus because really, if the person that doesn't know Jesus, what on the other side of this, what hope do you have? What hope do you cling to? Do do we breathe our very last breath and that's just it, forever sleep? Well, then that makes all of this seem really pointless, right? Is it that we're putting our our trust in just hoping that my good outweighs my bad? Like, really? That's that's what you're gonna stake your hope in? Just hoping that your good exceeds your bad? All of this is brought out of darkness into the marvelous light. That's what Jesus has brought us and changed our identity. Now we have something to share and proclaim. Now you're a holy nation. You've received mercy. All of these wonderful descriptors about who we are. For the sake of time, moving on to verse 11, and we'll end in these last couple verses here. It says, beloved, again, title, description, hold on to. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here we see, we'll end with that end of that section. We hear, see that we're not just a big deal in heaven, we're also a big na- deal now because you're Beloved, your loved. Some of us have been seeking and searching for that their entire lives. This reminder, if there's any identity statement that you could actually hold on to, it's interesting because on our in our notes we double, triple checked it, but still that word we duplicated another word because it didn't make it in there. And I'm like, oh, that's the one I want them to grab the most. Your beloved. You're not just a future scenario. You're a current scenario of the object of God's love. Described them as beloved, as sojourners and exiles. You might remember that description last week, being outsiders. That you're, you're not at home here yet. You're beloved, but you're not at home. And so since you're loved, he calls us to what? To live differently. To abstain from the passions of of the flesh, abstain from what we naturally go back to, the things that if we're operating in the flesh that we tend to go back to. 
I have a lovely little dog. I've shown a picture of him uh, be, before. His name's Bailey. Here's a, a picture of sweet little Bailey. It's actually, Bill, that picture's at your house in your backyard. Uh, that, that, uh, that, that dog, Bailey, sometimes when I stop and think about it, any dog owners in here, sometimes when I stop and think about it, my dog's kind of gross. My dog's, if you really actually stop and think, the things that it sniffs, the things that it licks, the things that it, that it does, that it eats, that's been like found on the ground. You're kind of like, this thing, this little animal's gross. Why do we let it exist in our home? Here, here the, the question is, you're like, it's basically a little animal and it's really good at pursuing treats that basically just exists to respond to its impulses. Basically, it feels like sniffing something, it sniffs something. It feels like licking something, it licks something. It feels like eating something. It, like, there's no, it's just primal. Like, it's just basic, like, no self-control in that, that little white monster. Like, that, that, that same picture is what God is calling us to. He's like, don't be a dog. Don't be a dog. Don't go living your life based on whatever the urges of the moment. And that's what our culture says. Don't let anything get in the way of your happiness. Whatever you feel, if it feels good, do it. How foolish, how foolish. He's saying exactly the opposite. Man, abstain from that stuff. Abstain. Why, why would you want to abstain? It's just, it's just so natural. Why, why, does it, why do you want to abstain? It says, oh, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's an outcome of this response to when you feel like it, do it. He's like, no, no, don't do that. That actually wages war against your soul. The things that we're drawn to in the flesh are actually out to destroy you. If we don't have a mindset of that there's a battle going on here, that there's something that's actually, wait, isn't that weird to think something's waging war against you? I've, I declare war against you. Like that, that's your passions wage war against you, whether you recognize it or not. And here's the truth of it. We need to expose sin for the liar that it is. It promises so much and always under delivers. The passions that wage war against us, always, when you think about it, they don't really turn out so well. Let's just think about just the, the, the big three. Here's the, the big three when you're talking about passions of soul. Uh, love of money, misuse of sex, and unhealthy use of power. The first one, love of money. How does that go? When, when you actually give yourself over to the love of money, how does that, does that work out? Is it something that you finally arrive and you're like, yes, I, I've made it. Or is it this insatiable thing? Something that you can never quite get enough, that never quite satisfies. And the more you have, the more empty you are with having more. And you think a little bit more will make you satisfied, but you get that and then you want a little bit more. It's this, it's this never ending pursuit. I have an uncle that uh, has done really well uh, in, in business and it's interesting to hear him talk. He says, you know, I spent the first half of my life trying to chase out to pursue wealth and the second half of my life trying to keep my wealth. And he's like, it's just this exhausting pursuit and you start playing that out. How, do, how does that do with our souls? How does that do? How does that, the pursuit of that not so well? It's, it puts so much pressure on, on families. Parents, how does it go with, with money? Well, if you have kids, you're kind of darned if you do, darned if you don't. Because if you give them of your resources, then they become what? Spoiled and entitled. When you don't give it, then they become bitter and don't trust or like you. Like You're like, yeah, what do I do with this money thing? So money, not so great. Misuse of sex. 
How does that leave somebody? Somebody that's just kind of going around and sleeping wherever they want with whoever they want. Here's the problem. They don't understand that it was an intention to connect a man and a woman for a lifetime. And so you're leaving a piece of you with somebody else. You're leaving a little part of you. And before you know it, before uh, too long, whether it's real sex or virtual sex, there's parts of you that are left places that were not intended and you're left feeling empty and unsatisfied. And here's the crazy thing about sex is that's only just the start of it. There's logical things like, hey, the passing on of disease. Hey, unwanted pregnancies. Hey, broken relationships and marriages when it's misused. All of that promises so much and always under delivers when it's outside of God's design. Unhealthy use of power. Think about that, the person that just gets a little taste of power and they want a little bit more. What happens to them and their relationships? People become an object or a means to gain more power and they get a little bit more of a taste of it. And the funny thing that happens to people that love power is they get obsessed with people's opinion of them. You wouldn't think that, but when you actually dive in and you do studies on character on people with power, they actually are very interested in people's opinion of it. And it's a, a cycle, destructive, all of these things waging war against you. You have to have a battle plan. That's what he's saying here. As a beloved child, I care about you so much, so you have to abstain from these things that are waging war against you. And not just resisting, also, you see that it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So when Christ returns, they may be able to look as much as they want to. I think it's interesting that, that it says, when they speak against you. So it's not saying if they will, they will speak against you. That you want to have no artillery, no, no basis for their claims against you or your good deeds. It's not just resisting. It's also saying, hey, how can I live in a manner? How can I live in a, in a way that people, when they look at my life, they're like, wow, man, I'm drawn to that. They're, they're actually living out their claims. Adrian and I had our anniversary uh, last week, our 21st anniversary. I think I mentioned that. And uh, we went up to Pismo Beach for a little uh, overnight. It was a, a real fun getaway. Well, we ran into a, a sweet couple that we knew from the church. And uh, they were uh, there just randomly. Anybody else run into ABF folks out at the strangest places where you're like, well, how did you get here? Anyway, we ran, ran into this sweet couple from the church and we were just talking about our plans for the evening and they had asked us in, uh, uh, where we're eating. We ended up showing uh, at the sushi place that we were having dinner at uh, for our anniversary. We ended up showing it about to, to pay our bill and somebody had snuck in in advance. They had snuck in in advance and paid our bill. I was like, how cool is that? And so I think that's something that all of you should follow suit on. No, I'm just kidding. As way of application. No, I'm just kidding. But what, what I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, what would that be like for the, the waitress that met them there at the front? They're explaining their plans to like really bless their, their pastor. And, 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 uh, and the, as she's receiving that, and there, there has to be something that's like, man, there, there's something going on here. There's something different happening in their life. I think those kind of things should be what we're marked with. We're marked by, by not just abstaining, but also leaving an influence on everybody that we cross paths with. What if that actually ran through our brains? Hey, what kind of a positive impact could I leave on this person? How could I bless them so that when they look at my life, they can say, man, there's something different about them. 
all of these identity statements are to nudge us towards the reality of who we are. Because we're definitely not who other people say we are. We're definitely not who we think we are. But instead, the only opinion that matters is what he says about us. And what does he say? He says that we're, we're holy priests. He, sa- he says that we're set apart, that we're cho- a chosen people, that we're, we're royal, that we're blessed, all of these things. Man, I would love for us to adopt those as true identity statements, and it wouldn't just be what he believes about us, but what we believe about ourselves. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to look at your word and to see the truth about who we are if we've embraced you as our cornerstone. If we've put our trust, if we've accepted you and think the same way that God thinks about you, Jesus, we just are so grateful for these identity statements. God, I pray that they would take root, that they would define us, they, they would compel us towards living differently, towards abstaining from things that just want to destroy us. God, I ask that you do a work in each of us based on these truths about ourselves. We invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I am who you say I am. It's almost like Chad chose that song in alignment with this sermon. Uh, Well done. I pray you have a wonderful Sunday. If there's something specific we can be praying for you, we have a few volunteers here up front. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a great day.